What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day Savings happening now at The Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Well, hey there, movie crushers. Uh, it's me, Noel. Um, you, you might be a little surprised to hear me at the beginning of a, a Friday interview episode. Um, but Chuck and I had the uh, wonderful privilege of being able to sit down with John Cameron Mitchell um, from Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, the creator and star of the uh, Broadway show, very, very influential film and director of things like Short Bus and... Um, the incredible audio podcast uh, psychedelic adventure um, Anthem Homunculus, which you can get on the Luminary Network. But uh, Chuck had a family situation come up, and so I ended up uh, flying solo with Chuck's blessing. So um, I met John last year um, through some podcast activities, and um, Hedwig was always a really, really important movie for me when I was younger uh, in college, and I watched it many, many times. And so to get to meet him and not only meet kind of one of my film heroes, but also to have him be just the most lovely down-to-earth, uh, sweet man I've ever met in my entire life. And essentially, we kind of became pals. And he uh, sat down with me, and we talked about his movie crush, Nashville, the Robert Altman epic kind of slice-of-life film uh, that I had never seen. I'd really only seen um, Prairie Home Companion and MASH. So it was kind of, as we talk about in the interview, the beginning and the end of Altman's career. But hugely influential filmmaker uh, informed folks like Paul Thomas Anderson in this very naturalistic style of filmmaking. And we get into all that in the interview. So I won't bore you here at the top. Let's get into it. I mean, I grew up with, you know, super sci-fi fantasy comic kid in the 70s and uh, you know 
I was sort of an advanced student in, in Junction City, Kansas, where my podcast anthem takes place. Uh, the nun didn't know what to do with me because I was too advanced in my studies. So she just put me, I was, I had a class alone with the meanest nun in school. Wow. And she let me read whatever I want and then report on it. So I just read like Robert Heinlein and Dune and Andre Norton and, and wrote, uh, articles aren't she's like there's no real literary value here there's you know there's interesting descriptive language but these these types of books don't have literary value and i was like i was you know 14 i was like they don't <laughs> you know, I thought, what was her concept of literary value the well, bible she wanted me to win <laughs> she was so mean she wanted me to win a competition english competition which which was basically all multiple choice. So if you had, you would, you know, Silas Marner, all the classics, you know, who's the, the protagonist of Silas Marner? Who wrote, you know, uh, Little Women? Who wrote, you, you know, As I Lay Dying? So Trivia. I, but I never had to yeah. read the books. Right, well, yeah. I got first in Kansas in, in these, you know, like knowing the, the, the titles and the protagonists and the, the writers, but never read one of those books. And she was like, yes! She was like this very competitive nun who was like, we've destroyed the competition and never read a book. Now, there's a character in your podcast that you talk about, Anthem Homunculus, that's a nun who I believe is your aunt. In my the- aunt, I have, based on my Aunt Terry, who is the coolest relative and aunt and nun, uh, who's like super liberal and you know, environmentalist. And right. Not a heroin addict, though, like uh, no, the Patty LuPone character. No, she wasn't a heroin okay. addict. Okay. She was a little embarrassed by that. But I'm going to see her next week uh, when I sing Brian Weller in my song, I See What I Am, which was Patty LuPone's big song, with the Jazz Orchestra of Lincoln Center and Wynton Marsalis. Oh, my gosh. That's that's a big deal. Oh, Come on. Next down. week, you say? Well, it's the... Last two days of January, first day of February. Okay, I'm 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 in town next week. Maybe I can make that happen. I would love that. Um, just backing up to to Anthem, and you know, you, you say it's set in your hometown of Junction City, Kansas. Junction City. What was that like? Like in you know, I know what it was like as it was portrayed in the podcast. What was that like for you? Aside from these uh, solo classes with Sister uh, Anne, Anne, yeah. Um, or Sister Frederick. No, she was the headmistress. Got it. They had to take those male names. Um, there was a sense of, you know, it was the 70s, so you didn't really know what was happening outside the world. And, you know, punk was exploding elsewhere, and we didn't know what that was. And the cars were the, you know, seemed the punkiest thing we'd ever heard of. we get stoned. Listening. That was on the radio, though, right? Like, cars were on the radio, yeah. and... Uh, they were new, right? They were new, the first new wave sure. hits, I guess, in the U.S. Um, so we get stoned and listen to Moving in Stereo at Milford Lake uh, and didn't know that there was a, a town under the lake because they had flooded, you know, when they flood a town mm-hmm. to make a reservoir. And that became an image in our podcast. And so it was going back there and, and remembering the weirdness of this small high crime town next to an army base, Fort Riley, which meant it was very racially mixed, which made it more fun. Uh, but it was still Kansas and it was so it was still kind of conservative and you know, my school 
St. Pius, I, there was like 15 graduating students, and you know, I went to the reunion, the 35th reunion. St. Pius is the most conservative saint. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that was uh, that was Saint 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 Xavier. St. Pius was in uh, Albuquerque where I went, but he was a super conservative pope. Um, but Saint X was more easygoing, and but it was always really it had this because of the army thing it was like super racially mixed and there was all kinds of music was valid and people didn't separate themselves as much so i went to my high school reunion uh only once 35th anniversary so i recommend if you're gonna if you hate the idea of a reunion go after your 50 because everyone's evened out no one's you're not competitive anymore because you're alive right Right, <laughs> you're just like the that's the same. great equalizer. It's a great yeah. equalizer is time, and uh, it was beautiful. And I was just remembering, you know, and like looking at the t- trailer park where Hedvig would have lived. And in Anthem, the character lives in Hedvig's trailer, though has never met her. So it's all in the same universe. And uh, Brian Weller and I wrote uh, the first draft in Lawrence, Kansas, which was in William Burroughs' house. Mm-hmm. Um. Because I knocked on the door on that first trip, and the caretaker, Tom King, was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm writing a musical that might take place on this porch. He's like, all right, I have another one. Come huh? on in. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the bullet holes that Bill shot off from his bath into the roof. And it was like, wow, William Burroughs' tiny house, big yard, and we... Uh, we wrote there for about a month. James Guirerholtz, his partner, invited us. And so the insanity of uh, of Burroughs, which really predicted the insanity of today, you know, if ever there was a Trump character that, or ever there was a Burroughs character, it would be Trump, right? Just beyond belief, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Proto-fascist, you know, Burroughs was right. And... Uh, Cartoonish, even you know. Cartoonish, yeah. but you know, truly beyond belief, and um, so it was a perfect place to to set it and to start it. Uh, and we we kind of did a road trip writing writing a tour of it. And Burroughs features um, relatively prominently into the show itself. There's a fantastic uh, sound alike or a voice uh, performance that really hits Burroughs on the on the nose. Yeah, Ben Foster, who actually played him in Kill Your Darlings, the movie, and is wants to make a film that he's directing himself as Burroughs in the prime years of in Mexico, and you know when he shot his wife sure. by accident. And, it's, I mean, that was one of my. I, I love the whole thing, and just uh, I, I got I got the uh, that's the, a particularly fun section. It's very fun, but I got the the privilege to actually sit and experience this podcast in one sitting um, oh. in New York, and uh, as at the um, the IFC Center where you did a listening party. That was the first uh, for me uh, for a listening party of an entire narrative podcast series, and that's really the way to experience a show like that. Something that dense, so you can really focus the sound. The mm-hmm. 5.1 cinema right. mix. We had some abstract visuals yep. we created for it that I think really worked. Distributed CBD gummies and soft blankets <laughs> and uh, lavender face mists. So the whole thing was just a delight. Going close, spritzing them in your face. Uh-huh, with her little dog, Peepy, right? Did I make that up? Peepy? Peepy? Pip. Pip? Yes. Okay. Brian Weller's in the room. Say hi, Brian. Hello. 
My brilliant composer. Brilliant composer. Um, yeah, any, we're doing more of these marathons. We I, did one in Austin. Yeah, anyone that has a chance that if one of these comes through your town, check it out. And if not, uh, get your Luminary subscription and check it out. It's a really, really wonderful show. Um, so big time influenced by your early days growing up in a small town and kind of how that informed the rest of your career. I really think it's interesting. You think of a place like a small town in Kansas, you don't think of it as being particularly progressive, but I love this idea of you kind of making your own culture and having access to things, but obviously there's no internet. You're not able to find the latest things. You kind of get it in little dribs and drabs, right? So what was that like? And what, when did you kind of break through beyond just the cars on the radio and were there zines? Like what was it? The, well, the, I was still, you know, a good boy, Catholic boy, son of a general, um, queer, you know, haven't, hadn't quite dealt with it, but knew I would. I think being queer saved me from an unexamined life. I'd probably be more like the character, you know, in Anthem, you know, a librarian, still creative, but just maybe not taking any, as many risks. Mm. Uh, so I, I really put down being queer to, to, to uh, forcing me to examine everything that I've been taught, if certain things I was taught were clearly wrong, um, then others must have been wrong too. <laughs> so that's... Well, it's like when you find out Santa Claus isn't real, it's like, does that mean yeah. Jesus isn't real too? Or there is no God? <laughs> exactly. It's like the leap that you make. There, there, here's a funny story. A, a friend of mine was, uh, his parents were kind of hippies and they they sort of did a, a Santa thing. Sure, Santa. He was six and they were like, yes, yeah, Santa, but they were very casual about it and they'd keep forgetting the plot and they kind of let it slip you know when he was six that you know they're like right Santa and he's like he he's like what there's no Santa and they were like oh well no but the the spirit of giving and he's like he was furious at <laughs> six and he went up to his room and he didn't speak to them for two days and then he came back from school and they're like hi and he goes Hi. How was today? Fine. I have a new friend, Nathan. Oh, great. That's great. I'm going up to my room. So every day they had to like get, you know, apologize for the Santa. Next day, you're a little late today. Where were you? I was playing with Nathan. Oh, Nathan, your new friend. We'd love to meet him. Yeah. Went up the next day. Um, I'm going to stay a sleepover with Nathan tonight. You are not. We need to meet Nathan and and his parents. And, and he goes, there is no Nathan. Only Zool. <laughs> and they were just... Wow. <laughs> wow. That's, oh there, my gosh. He set the whole thing. There is no Nathan. How See, does it feel? That is an extreme reaction to <laughs> not finding, to finding out that Santa Claus <laughs> yes. isn't real. I actually had a really great conversation with uh, your friend Julian Coster. He introduced me to, we're actually sitting here in Athens, Georgia right now, by the way. Um, Julian of Neutral Milk Hotel. You've got a, a lot of Athens connections as, as do I, but um, Julian really, really loves the idea of Santa Claus. And oh, Christmas. yes. It's a big thing for him. There's some Santa stuff here from uh, we're at Robbie Cucharo's house, who's in Julian's band, uh, the music tapes, and Orbiting Human Circus, his exactly. podcast. And I asked uh, Julian, you don't think it's the great betrayal when you find out that when you when you find out your parents have been lying to you and that Santa's not real? And he goes, No, 
Santa is real. Santa is a spirit. You know, it isn't just because he's not a person that comes doesn't down your chimney doesn't mean he's not real. And he loves this idea of the spirit of Christmas, of giving and kindness and charity and all that. And it really like made me take a step back and kind of ditch that cynical view. Yeah, because um, there's a there's a sculpture up there of Santa with the halo and wings. Yep, I mean, he sure was is. a saint. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think that's a really interesting. The two diametrically uh, opposing stories about finding out that Santa's not real. But I'm a I'm a dad, and my kid's eleven, and she took it just fine. She, she kind of knew. She's like, and, I know. You know, I was worried that it was she was going to go down that rabbit hole of well, if Santa's not real, are you lying to me about literally everything. Um, <laughs> the tooth we've, fairy. We've moved past that. Um, so I like the idea of Anthem and Hedvig having this kind of shared universe. You don't really lean into that too hard in this in the podcast. But uh, tell me a little bit about the the genesis of of the Hedvig character and the whole the way that came about for you. Hedvig, uh, well, Hedvig was based uh, on a babysitter for our family who was uh, I realized later was a prostitute on the side, and me and my friend Brenda would go to her trailer park and sing songs for her and she had a lot of dates um and never knew what they were going to look like before they came over and she we were she was like we were like she's so popular and she's not even that good looking and she's just so and if they came up the driveway we had we were had to go out the back uh but sometimes if she didn't like the look of them she'd go out the back too with us so she kind of was the initial visual and kind of you know tone for the character um and then we Stephen Trask and I added a lot more you know to her and we were we were both he was working and I was hanging out at a, a drag a rock and roll drag club called Squeezebox in the 90s at Don Hills and it was so it was the queer club I always wanted because it was just so punk and fun and and he said we should develop uh, the musical we were writing. We should start with this female character who was a smaller character in the piece, Helga, mm-hmm. who became Hedvig. And I just thought about her more and more. And then the idea of the forced sex change and the the Berlin stuff. My dad lived in Berlin for a while as a military commander. So all this stuff came together and watching the amazing performers you know, uh, Jane County and Mistress Formica and, and Laverne Cox and these people who were performing there, these trans and drag performers who just blew me away. They were so punk and didn't even know it, you know. And uh, our first gig was was so exciting and our first song was Origin of Love that he wrote. It's my favorite. And... Um, it was uh, the birth of it. And we tried to keep it out of theaters for a while to keep it from getting toned down, you know, by a, th- a theater and keep it in the clubs. So you did it as a band almost first? We did it as gig, fake, uh-huh. you know, gigs for a fake band. Um, and, and But it didn't have all the narrative pieces yet? It or? did. Okay. Even, the first, even the first gig had a, a narrative story and I ripped the drag off at the end like I do in the show sure. and... But we covered, uh, we used cover songs for the songs we didn't have. So the song about the operation, we used Yoko Ono's Death of Samantha. And for the another song, we used uh, Oh Well, Fleetwood Mac was our opening song, Boys Keep Swinging, Love that Half Breed, um, 
so it was like we rewrote the lyrics. Reckless Eric, whole, whole wide world, was sort of about trying to, you know, get out of mm-hmm. Berlin. Did you find that you ended up taking cues from some of those stylistically for the songs that you were playing yeah, with? Yeah, like yeah. there's a song we have called Exquisite Corpse, which is a real Per Ubu-like song. So we used to do Nine Alignment Pact. Uh, Hedvig uh, had a Serbian boyfriend who was a DJ, and she could pick up a show on her braces. So we had weird Per Ubu-type songs, and, you know... She was from East Berlin and wanted to be non-alignment packed. You know, that was the song. And so we, all the people that we were learning from uh, informed the music and the story. And that's why it's quite eclectic uh, style-wise. Um, I mean, it's all kind of has that 70s, you know, crunchy feeling. But sure. there's country, there's, you know, there's ballads. But there's, the character has that chameleonic quality as well. Like yeah, with the looks she's and with a the different wigs. And exa- exactly, yeah. yeah. And Anthem really followed on from that. It, it perhaps has a similar tone. You know, someone's talking to an audience, telling stories through songs, humor. You know, there's a similar tone to Hedvig. Uh, we wrote Anthem originally as a Hedvig sequel, but that was too much. And uh, then it became more autobiographical. Uh, what would I be like if I never left Junction City? Um and, and, and hold up in there and, and got sick and had to crowdfund my, my treatment. So, uh, we're, you know, we're still doing more of these, uh, these marathons. Uh, we've got some coming up in Portland, uh, L.A., and uh, San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, well, again, if, if one comes through your town, I highly recommend checking it out. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously, it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. 
Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I'd love to pivot to, to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never seen this particular Altman movie, and I'm not really a student of Altman. I've, I've honestly only seen MASH and A Prairie Home Companion, which is kind of <laughs> embarrassing. That's like the beginning and the end. It is, right? And the funny thing is uh, Nashville and Prairie Home Companion actually have a, a little bit in common in some ways. Only because um, Prairie Home takes place behind the scenes in this big theater show. Right. And you kind of see all the lives of the different characters, the singers and their dressing rooms and all of that. And then everyone comes together in the end for the big show, right? That's sort of what Nashville is. There's yeah. all of these disparate characters in the city of Nashville going through their lives. I read Ebert wrote um, of it that you sort of are just plopped into this world where people don't make entrances as much as they just kind of exist. And that's what I think was so special about it. I almost, I walked away, I watched it with my girlfriend and I walked away from it and we were both kind of like, what is this movie about? And that's sort of the point. It's it's not. I mean, it, we could get into what it's about, but yeah, I know what it's about for I, yeah, me. I, I think that's yeah. exactly. It's open ended. You can absolutely project yourself onto it, but um, it really is just like slice of life is such a cliche thing to say, but that's really what it feels like. It feels like you're living with these real people, these real characters, um, and I just I just was fascinated by it. It's this massive ensemble cast. Um, Massive screen, massive, wide screen. Exactly. And like, I think there's something like 25 speaking roles, but there's no star. There's no perspective character that is taking you on this journey. It's all of these things that then come together at the end for this big uh, benefit concert at the end at the Parthenon, right, in Nashville. Um, this is what Ebert wrote about, uh, about this film. Robert Altman's Nashville, which was the best American movie since Bonnie and Clyde, creates in the relationships of nearly two dozen characters a microcosm of who we were and what we were up to in the 1970s. It's a film about the losers and the winners, the drifters and the stars in Nashville, and the most complete expression yet of not only the genius, but also the humanity of Altman, who sees people with his camera in such a way as to enlarge our own experience. That's like vintage Ebert from when it came out. Um, So why, why Nashville? I saw it first in college in the early 80s at the giant varsity movie palace in Evanston, Illinois. And, it, you know, there were certain films that that just intoxicated me. Um, that was the one that I remember the most. I just came – it's long. You feel like you've lived it. You come out of it feeling kind of stoned. Um, it's incredibly funny and incredibly moving at the same time. And that's a, a, a nexus that I love to work in, is that place of, uh, am I going to laugh or am I going to cry? Um, and just the, the audacity of, you know, taking your time. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, t- you know, today it's even more shocking to actually take your time. Yeah, it's, it, there's no frenetic editing in this. You live, you, you breathe. Live it, everything you breathe breathes. It. Yeah, exactly. A lot of scenes are in one shot that zoom Sure. Slowly. That's a classic Altman thing to do is to zoom very slowly and focus. Another, he uh, pioneered multi-track 
recording. So he would have, you know, body mics on dozens of people in one scene. And the actors never knew the camera was on them because the camera was so far away doing these long zooms on long lenses. So you got a, a real sense of reality when he wouldn't tell people who was being shot. So they all were on it. They were all acting fully and improvising a lot right. with a very strong central script by Joan Tewksbury, who I even wrote a fan letter to back in the 80s when I was starting out. I sent her my first script and, and a cassette tape of the soundtrack of the song. Which is amazing, and it's a character in and of itself. The songs, yeah, right. there's But my subtext. script was... Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Because you know, gotcha. yes, yes, it had a, a feeling of, of Nashville, and uh, it was pre-existing songs, but I, uh, she wrote back, I'm not going to have time to read your script, but I'd like to keep the cassette to listen to. And I was like, At least she wrote back. That's I pretty know, rare. I know. That's, that's I nice. Wrote back. I, I almost met her in, recently in New York. I was going to like, I want my cassette back. <laughs> um, and so when I saw it, I was sitting alone and I just was drunk. You know, being an act, studying acting in Northwestern, I, it was just, he's such, Altman is such a lover of actors and demands them to be partners. Other directors, Kubrick and other geniuses, use them as puppets, mm -hmm. brilliant puppets, but it was all about Kubrick. Altman, I think, had this theatrical feeling of like, we're all doing this together. And he, he famously had uh, the actors at the end of the day, the shooting day, watch the dailies from the day before and have drinks and get stoned and whatever. It was mates for a long day because you're shooting for 12 hours and then you're looking at the dailies. And it was like this party. You know, all the actors who worked with him said it was just like being in a party. And the movie executives hated him because he was so, you know, like, fuck you, I'm doing it my way, like Cassavetes. Well, he'd earned his stripes at this point with the hit, right? Like with, with MASH. Yeah, which, which was, was a weird, you know, film that it only happened because they were doing something else and they they let him do it without checking in on it. So when it came... Like they when, forgot? <laughs> yeah, when it came to them, they were like, what the hell is this? Because it was really very loose. Sure. You know, it was... Yeah. Closer to Easy Rider than anything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a, a surprise hit. You know, it, was, it caught... He was an older generation, you know, more from the beatnik era. Right. Uh, but it caught the zeitgeist in an unexpected way, Of the way, hippies, yeah. yeah, which he wasn't, but he got with them. You uh -huh. know, it was like he, they loved him because he was a true man of the people and a true anti-authoritarian. Sure. And... Uh, you know, even the weird kind of gaze thing in... Because in, uh, remember, they sort of pretend... Or they tell one of the characters that he's he's gay to fuck with him. And then they have like a, this this sort of living funeral for right. him. And it's like a very strange... He's going to kill himself for being gay, but it's sort of a joke. It's weird too. Like, I mean, even the theme, the suicide is painless. That was the song. Right. But what a strange yeah. sentiment. <laughs> I know. And know. it was a Korean War, but obviously about Vietnam. Sure. And, so Nashville, to me, was his chef d'oeuvre. You know, that was his great... He made some great films, but to me, that's his best. And uh, the actors... He could also take any actor... <coughs> excuse me. He could take any actor... It wasn't even an actor. You know, like uh, 
Lily Tomlin had, was just more of a sketch comedian, and he gave her this role that was quite low key, mm-hmm. and she was brilliant. You know, was nominated for an Oscar and maybe won. And Keith Carradine, who was like the, you know, the L.A. kind of folky cool guy, yeah, yeah. The cool guy, cool guy who was somewhat country, but really more like the Eagles or something. And he's fucking everybody inside. And the amazing scene where he sings "I'm Easy" to all these women who think he's singing to them directly, right. and then you find out it's Lily Tomlin and, and Ned Beatty, and it's just and the stripper Gwen Wells, a heartbreaking scene of these people trying to make it and let's 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 go yeah. into that a little bit i mean to me it, this is post watergate there's a political vibe just, yeah i just think he was so. making Only, it yeah during i think that's right but, but 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 there's this character who sort of looms large over the whole thing this faceless presidential primary candidate right. kind of a ross perot type. exactly and what's the, what's the name of the character uh H. Philip Walker, I believe. Yeah. And well, I think only, was a real guy. Maybe so. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know that. But all, all you ever, you hear from this character because his um, campaign bus has these megaphones and you just hear him pontificating, whether it's him in live or it's recordings, you don't know, it doesn't really matter, but it's all about how politicians are corrupt, um, they're all lawyers, they're all a bunch of crooks, you know, all of that stuff. So there's that vibe, and then you're in Nashville, but it's very clear there's hippies in it. Jeff Goldblum plays this amazing, I refer to him as the magical hippie, because he doesn't speak, and he does this magic trick at the beginning where he, like, pours salt into his hand and then, like, pulls it out of the air. And uh, Shelley Duvall super Right, Shelley Duvall. Super skinny, hippie kind of um, groupie character who's going, who's only in town to see her dying aunt, but never manages to make it to see her in the hospital. Right, she's a selfish creature. And she keeps getting distracted by celebrity and chasing guys. And her uncle's stuff. played by Keenan Wynn, is it? I or, think so, yeah. Who's a touching, you know, his, his wife has just died and he's in the hospital and he's trying to reach out to people nearby. That's and right. It's a beautifully interwoven story uh, it's almost, feels like kind of like a, a, a tapestry or a, or the loom that makes a tapestry because you see the characters winding in and out of each other bumping into each other you know there's the african-american country singer based on charlie pride right. who you know henry gibson uh who i love by the he's maybe my oh, favorite he's like this horrible yeah. you know old school kind of racist you know power broker he's kind of the old guard though he, he's the first yeah. guy you see in the movie where they're making this bicentennial song in the studio um live to tape which is super cool because you see the background singers in one booth and the band and he yells at the hippie piano player yeah, with the long and says, hair. get a haircut you don't belong in nashville so he's kind of the old guard then you've got keith carradine who's sort of this like more hippie type folk singer he's kind of the new guard and there's this interesting clash like nashville is this microcosm of what's going on with that clash between old and new and I think a big part of it too is sort of the banality of evil in the entertainment industry where people are sort of treated like pawns even what is it Barbara uh, the kind of ailing country singer Ronnie Blakely yes what's her character's name it's um, Barbara Barbara Jean Jean, right she's amazing she's incredible but like from the moment you see her you know she's not well (laughs) and yet she's like kind of propped up and pushed out on stage and you know you, you barely even get to hear her sing and there's a part where she is performing and is clearly, you know, having some kind of episode and she's like talking about her grandma and all this stuff and her manager or whatever kind of pulls her off and she's like, no, I'm not 
not done, you know, but it's very clear that she's become a liability. You know, and- the cl- the club I did had to begin this uh, drag queen named Sherry Vine, who I love, did a recreation of that scene where Barbara Jean is starting a song and then like digressing and like, you know, I used to live on a farm and the chickens were mm-hmm. and just kind of going insane. Right. And the song starts and then stops and starts. But it, she's doing like hearts, you know, crazy on you, I sure. think was the song she did. But, you know, only a couple of us recognize what she was actually doing from... But then she has this nemesis who's like the more uh, gussied up version of her kind of... Karen who's Black. more than willing to swoop in and capitalize on her, you know, not doing very yeah. well. Um, Connie, Connie White played by right. Karen Black. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> and <laughs> the other great thing is that Altman asked each actor to write their own songs. Right. So Karen Black wrote her own song, you know, like a Rolling Stone. And uh, Ronnie Blakely, who was a country singer from Montana, I think, or Idaho, uh, hadn't really acted. And she's brilliant. Again, nominated for an Oscar. She has incredible breakdown scenes. Alan Garfield, his horrible, her horrible manager. Yeah. Pro- you know, again, propping her up. She's sort of a Loretta Lynn type, but falling apart. Um my favorite song is probably Do's, one of her songs. Sure. But Keith Carradine wrote I'm Easy, which won an Oscar. You know, everyone wrote their yeah. own songs, which you can feel it. Oh, 100%. And sang them all live, which right. was also very new. And, and rare, yeah, for sure. That Keith Carradine song, winning that Oscar, got him a, a record deal. Oh, really? And then he went on and made a couple of records for Asylum, but he it wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan kind of like, you know, vanity project. Like, he obviously had some chops. He was a good singer, Good songwriter. Mm. Um, I, I have that record, and it's it's quite good. Um, you mentioned the scene with the the stripper, who I actually didn't realize was a stripper until a little later in the movie. I just thought she was kind of a wannabe because she's a pretty bad singer. Well, she was a wannabe. They forced her to strip, remember? For sure. But I realized there's a conversation she has at the end where I almost feel like she's a meant to be a sex worker because she's talking to a guy who seems like he's maybe her pimp, and he's mm. saying, honey, you're a bad singer. Like, let it go. Give it up, you know? And she just is so plucky and, like, full of... Of confidence that she doesn't see it but that scene to me um the way women are treated in this film is seems very intentional on altman's part to be like they're if they can't sing or they're not sexualized then they're like marginalized and even uh, lily tomlin's character who's kind of i would say the moral center of the mm-hmm. film because she has deaf deaf children and she's obviously a really devout mother she uh, is a gospel singer so i think that's not unintentional terrible gospel singer. right but she <laughs> really sells it, you know, yeah. and gives it her all. And um, there's that scene when Keith Carradine sings I'm Easy and they kind of lock eyes. And I'm like, why is she so into this guy? He's kind of the heel. Like he's a, a womanizer and he's sleeping with people and then calling up the next woman that he's going to sleep with, you know, from the room. And then, I, oh my God, she went to bed with him. I didn't understand. That it seemed like it, it was meant to imply that everyone's, no one's beyond corruption, you know, in this, uh, in this world. I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful world, and he has his work, his uh, repertory company of actors that you see in many of his films: Frederick Forrest and Ned Beatty, and uh, even Julie Christie shows up, and and Elliot Gould, right? That As himself, yeah. yeah. It's a hilarious scene where he shows up, and Geraldine Chaplin, uh, Charlie Chaplin's daughter, mm-hmm. who is also a kind of a narrator she's like a bbc you know oh i love her ridiculous bbc 
journalist. Right. There's a scene where she's walking through like a scrapyard and saying the rust on the cars look like dried blood or so, you know, it's <laughs> yes. just so over the top. Yeah. It's 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 so juicy and delicious. Um it must have been a blast to shoot. And it it has a kind of when you you talked about what is it about? I mean to me it all comes down to that last scene when Barbara Jean is doing the fundraiser and uh, a you know a character that has been sort of shadowy um, with the guitar case yeah, yeah. Uh, turns out to be a, a, a killer right you know and a stalker and uh, and she is assassinated you know it's not a spoiler I mean it's very much leading up to this and then the the plucky wannabe played right. by Barbara Harris not the, the, the a different one who kind of you see try to get backstage and she's held up and yeah Barbara know. Harris who's a great you know 70s star who just recently died um plays a minimally minimally talented you know country singer and she you know as Barbara Jean goes down they're like, keep the music going, to, you know, so there's no panic. And she grabs the mic and sings the song, which is the center of, metaphorically, of the whole piece, which is, you know, the chorus is, you may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. And that is America. Right. You know, we, we scream about this freedom and it changes meaning. You know, conservatives will say you're not free unless your health care is taken away from you, <laughs> you know, or you, you know, the definition of freedom is so malleable in our country that, you know, plutocrats use it to keep people under, you know, it's like, you're not free if you actually get anything. Uh, if you get free education, you're not free. And, you know, it's like, but we also were based on a kind of freedom. So uh, other things came out of America that are were very useful to the world, you know. Ideas of of uh, female emancipation and queer rights, and and you know, finding civil rights, came out of this crazy stew. You know, a country founded by capitalist conquistadors and religious fanatics, uh, you know, who pushed the native people out, crushed it, brought in slaves. And then weirdly created a place that was a beacon for other countries for, of self-determination. Right. You know, it's a weird... Kind of contradiction. Almost, yeah, we're yeah. a strange country. And I feel that that film captures so much of it. But effortlessly. It doesn't... It's mm-hmm. not cloying in any it's kind of didactic. metaphor. You know, mm-hmm. it's... You have to kind of bring that to it yourself. And I... I, I I knew there was something to it and I read a little more about it and realized I was on the right track. And, but it's more of a feeling than some sort of lesson. Yeah. That's what I think is so special yeah, about it. Yeah, it's like it's really, you, you feel like you've lived it rather than been told anything. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a subtle moment of, you know, the, the black uh, country singer based on Charlie Pride. At the Grand Old Opry. Yeah. And then he's at the, the racetrack or something and Henry Gibson is like, oh, how great to see you. And then under his breath, he goes, you know, you're lucky to be alive here. Whoa. You know, and it's like, it's just like the, the that other, you know, the darkness under the southern, right. the southern Under skin. the rhinestones. Yeah, you know, under the yeah. hospitality. 
and but also very loving. Of course, Nashville itself hated the movie once again. Of course, they were just like, "How dare you!" You know, Outsider. satirize yeah. us. You yeah. know, you damn California people. It, that's the thing, though. It doesn't even strike me as satirical. It strikes me as very real, and it feels very tender. You know, uh-huh. I, I don't think of it as making fun of these people. I don't think so. Either. You know, it's definitely has satirical elements and crazy, you know, madness about it. But you love everybody, mm-hmm. you know, in one way or another. For yeah, sure. yeah. It's interesting too the the kind of wannabe that that sings that that last song I found her delivery to almost have this unhinged kind of more punk rock mm. modern quality mm-hmm. when a lot of the vocals had been very smooth. old school and smooth mm-hmm. and like that kind of real traditional country western style she almost brought more of like a belty kind of like rawness to it yeah. that I thought was on purpose I really did yeah. think because you know, it was like this is the future you know I don't know yeah, Again, yeah. she was an opportunist obviously and but- she was a you know a Broadway singer mm-hmm. herself mm-hmm. Uh, but there is something very weird about that, the way she sings it. And it's. And then it just ends. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. The soundtrack is, like you said, is an amazing thing in and of itself. 
because so much of it is sung live. And uh, somehow it was a hit. Pauline Kael, you know, kind of saved it. You know, she was so influential. And it, the, the, the studio, I believe, was going, wanted to cut the hell out of it because it's three hours long. And uh, Altman slipped her or screened her his cut. So she reviewed it before it came out. Oh, wow. And in, in effect, stopped the studio from cutting it. Interesting. She was that influential. Yeah, that, that influential. Imagine like giving it to a critic before it comes. I mean, the studio was, was furious, oh, yeah. but it made it a huge hit too. Smart on Altman's part. He kind of knew what he had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my favorite filmmakers of the 70s were, were Altman, Cassavetes, Hal Ashby, and Kubrick. Mm-hmm. And they all drove everybody crazy, you know, in the business. But, of course, the actors and his collaborators loved them. Um, I don't know if people loved Kubrick, the actors. Did Shelley Duvall have problems with him? Well, he just infamously made people do 9,000 takes. takes. Whereas Altman, they're talking about it's a party because it all feels very true to life. And And there weren't that many takes. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. Kubrick was... uh, But he he drove, you know, the the powers of B crazy, of course. But... And they often wrote, you know, they often made very idiosyncratic films that were long and, you know, didn't fit into the realm of, you know, marketing. And, but, you know, among my top films, they came from that era, you know, and there was Woman Under the Influence, which was Cassavetes, great film. Um, being There, ah, you know, was... Favorite. I know that was going to be one of your picks. We yeah, actually, uh, about that. somebody else just did that one. Oh, did they? Uh, yeah. They, yeah. Such so. an undersung film. Um, of course, he did Harold Maude and Shampoo 2 and mm-hmm. Last Detail, which I love. Um, and Kubrick's, you know, wonderful, you know, very strange, amoral panoply of, of films. I think maybe Dr. Strangelove is my favorite. Um I love Lolita, too. That doesn't get a lot of love, but I, I think that's great. Um, and Cassavetes, who went his own way and inspired all of them, you know, because he got started in the 50s. As some people describe him as, you know, the beginning of independent filmmaking in this country. He was inspired by the new wave mm-hmm. and s- shadows and faces and uh, eventually his great films, Women and the Influence and uh, Opening Night were ones that I keep coming back to. Say, how the hell did he do that? You know, and a lot of it has to do with working with the same people, you know, keeping, you know, keeping people off balance, but in a safe way, you know, to get some, the most surprising performances. And have you seen uncut gems yet? Yes. They, the Softy brothers have a similar thing where they kind of just let mm-hmm. their actors go. Mm. They don't, they, 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 I read, saw an interview or heard an interview on a podcast where they say they don't yell cut and action. Yeah. They just kind of set the pieces in motion and then let them go. Yeah. And the actors know when to start. And there's so much, again, like with Altman, stuff going on on top of itself, like in the gem shop where mm-hmm. there's so much real hubbub and excitement and people talking over each other and that to me really reminded me of uh, of the Altman and I, clearly Altman was a huge influence on Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, yes. and Magnolia in and particular. in fact when Altman was ailing Paul helped uh, direct his last helped direct a little bit on Prairie Home that's right I yeah. remember that 
But I love I love Paul's work too, and the way he works with actors. And so I learned from all of them when I was making my films. You know, I was, you know, I, I at the Sundance Lab, I broke down that scene with, with Lily Tomlin and, and uh, I'm Easy. That song broke it down into storyboards. Um, that was part of you know training to to direct Hedvig. Um, breaking down a scene that that you love and seeing how how the pieces work is a really great exercise and uh the way they both worked worked with actors i i did uh work my own version of a mixture of improv paraphrasing and a set verbatim script which i used most in my film short bus right which has With a, a little, lot of non-actors as well, right? Or or less experienced actors, sure. and you know, Shorpus has a bit of a Nashville feeling. You know, there's a mul- you know multiple protagonists mm-hmm. and uh, who bump into each other, and and all uh, periodically, uh, an event brings them together. You know, in in Nashville, the two there's three events where all the characters are in the same space, with whether they know each other or not. It's the beginning when they're all arriving in the air in the airport there's the traffic jam from the airport which is a hilarious uh situation where they're all stuck in a you know in a crash on an interstate and they all just start making music and drinking and whatever and then the end which is the the big benefit concert when they all converge so with shorpus i did the same you know there's a salon where they all come there's uh the blackout new york city blackout when they all come back together at the end um so these acts of god or goddess you know uh forces them all to come together and and find what they have in common um so those those films were very harold and maude as well um were very influential on on my uh three films uh hedvig shorpas and how to talk to girls at parties um Rabbit Hole was a more traditional thing, but even the way I work with the actors uh, was similar. You know, with my films, I would write the scenes very clearly, but with Shorpus, I'd say you can never learn your lines. I'll fire you if you learn your lines. <laughs> so if there were 10 lines in a scene and after the fifth line, someone pours a glass of water, they still had to do 10 lines, but every take we did, they had to do those lines differently they had to paraphrase them you know with less experienced actors the the danger is always that they they lose it after a take or two because they're trying to recreate something but if they can do it differently every time there's always a flow they still for editing's sake have to after that fifth line pour the water or leave at the certain point so that helps the editing yeah but um and often we'd use two cameras and so I learned a lot of that from from Altman. Well, John, I could talk uh, movies with you for for <laughs> hours, but alas, I think we should wrap this up. But um, we've been doing a thing. Uh, actually, I think uh, Chuck stopped doing it, but I'm going to do it with you to wrap this one up. Uh, we ask uh, our guests what their movie-going rituals are. I know you're a movie uh, fanatic. Do you, What's your theater in New York? Well, we have a lot of great theaters in New York, which is, you know, I'm, Within, you know, spitting distances, Film Forum, The Quad, The Metrograph, you know, even Lincoln Center. There's just IFC Center. There's just a million. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and some things you do n- need to see in a theater. I watch a lot at home on my giant TV and, you know, good sound system. So, um, we'll, you know, I love having movie nights too. And those are always fun to get the, the kookier ones. Like the, recently we watched a crazy film called Slither. You heard of that? It's James, like a horror James, sci-fi thing? No. Okay. James Caan, Sally Kellerman. It was like a strange little road comedy from the 70s. There's another one never from more recently of. called yeah, Slither. Yeah, there's another Slither. Horror yeah. sci-fi and there's thing, also yeah. Right. Which is another film. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a weird oddball. It's just so fun. And some things you just need to see in the screen because they require that. Nashville is one, I, I think... Because it's such wide frames, you you, it's great. You know, you want to see it on a big giant screen. Um, Metrograph is a place that I've been really wanting to yeah. go. And, uh, Brian and I actually tried to go, um, but I forget in New York for the you know kind of limited run stuff like that. It sells out. <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah, it's a small theater. Yeah, for sure. I saw, you know, one of the after Nashville, he did try to do similar films with multiple casts. Shortcuts people one, love, right? Shortcuts is great. A, a Wedding is another one that people don't think about much that I really like. It doesn't quite have the depth of Nashville, but it's incredible, you know, similar comic madness in, in a crazy wedding. Um, Carol Burnett is great. And my favorite line from that is she's like having an illicit affair at the wedding and, and you know the, the other married person is like Carol or whatever her name is. Carol, will you, will you, you know, have an affair with me? You know, will you actually? She's like tr- trying not to throw up, and it's all very new for her. And he goes, Carol, what's your answer right now? Your mouth is the most important opening in your body <laughs> for me. <laughs> it's like I always remember that line. Um, also health, which is a disaster. <laughs> That's his, maybe his worst film, which is at a health food convention. Dick Cavett's in it. Oh, wow. I think Carol Is it a fun it. disaster? It's just not funny. But okay. I saw a, a print of it. Who did? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan hated health. Um, <laughs> wow. you know, he also said ketchup was a vegetable. For school lunches. I think uh, our current president might think that as yeah, well. Yeah, let's not talk about him. Um, but I did see at Metrograph a, a print of health, which is very hard to find. And it was like, it's kind of cool. And prints, you know, they, they start to go. Sure. They get to go bad and they, they become pink. Okay. That's when you know it's an old print. It's like it's very thin and everything's pink right. so it's but it's kind of cool i saw a print of bad lieutenant with harvey Keitel at the nighthawk uh in brooklyn which i really like a lot um mm-hmm. and that movie's you know from the 90s but you know the quality of what new york looked like in the 90s first of all plus the wear on the print made it look like it was shot in the 70s yeah the whole vibe of it was was yeah. very 70s yeah um, i love that movie. abel ferrar i believe mm-hmm. right madman where do you like to sit in the theater what's your given your druthers are you a if it's a foreign film i'll actually go very close because i hate i like to slump down when i'm watching and then the subtitles if there's somebody's head there you know yeah film form has these really long theaters which i don't like the length of them but i'll have so i'll have to go up really close the screen is small there so if you go up close it feels like you're at the ziegfeld um 
you know, if it's a bigger place with a nice rake to the seating, I'll, I'll just sit, you know, in that first row with an, you know, a lateral aisle sure. so you don't have anyone in front of you. I just don't like anyone in front of me. I like to put my feet up too. Are you a snacker? No, because I don't like the crunching and the... My own what? I brought my own fiber pills or something, but... <laughs> Who decided you, you that popcorn? You resent the rustling. You resent. Who the, decided the, that popcorn was the thing in a theater? It's the loudest food. Not only that, Why not it bring is an pretzels? insidious food, John, because it gets stuck in your teeth in the worst possible way. It's not even that satisfying. I don't know whose idea that was. I think it was a byproduct of like the corn industry. It's, like we need to figure out a new way to sell this stuff. You know. Well, it's know. you know it's the anti-carb time, and you know it's a lot of fiber. Please, yeah. please. uh, Someone in the theater who worked there in Portland, he told me, and I agree, that if the screen of whatever theater you're in were to fall towards the audience, you would want to be in the row that is right, like one behind where the top of it would be. That's the perfect place to sit. That would be the best vantage point to view this disaster, is what you're saying. I got it. Oh, oh, I see. But still, you know, it would also you would just miss the disastrous falling of the screen. Yeah, there was a. a, a I love that. I think a, at Sundance Festival that, that happened. Screen fell fell over. I do remember. I may be the old oldest person in this room. I do remember when Earthquake came out, starring Sir Charlton Heston. Of course, uh, they had these sense around. Is that like so smell vision Made the seats oh, okay. vibrate. Got it. Yeah. Mm, for a terrible film. John Cameron Mitchell, any closing thoughts on Nashville, snacks, movie theater disasters, or anything I'd else? I'd say look at Charlton Heston again. We all know he was an idiot. He was great he, in Bowling for Columbine. That's right. <laughs> but he had an authority, didn't he? For sure. Um, oh, absolutely! He had a gravi- he had, I mean, he had a very classic gravitas to him. It was unmatched, and he, was, and he had a lot of lower teeth acting. And you know, people forget that in the Omega Man, he played the last asshole on earth. <laughs> so let that be the last film you watch. John, thank you so much You're for welcome. being on Movie Crush. <laughs> Always a pleasure. What a guy. John Cameron Mitchell, uh, one of my favorite human beings in the whole wide world. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know him and working together and sitting down with him for this uh, conversation was probably one of the coolest things I've ever gotten the chance to do. So really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Chuck will be back for future interview episodes. And of course, you can tune in to hear me and Chuck um, talk movies on the mini crush episodes. But um, hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks for giving me a shot, Chuck, to be in the big chair. Uh, it was it was a thrill. Um, we'll see you next time, folks, on the next movie crush. Here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.